0: Welcome everyone. My name is Shannon Brown. I'm a senior analyst at Standards Australia and your host of the Sets of Standard podcast. A podcast where we speak to industry experts about current and emerging industries and technologies to better understand the role of standards in benefiting the Australian community. Prepare yourself for an incredibly insightful conversation on quantum technologies with special guests from the world of academia, industry and standards. Introducing our first guest, Adam Stingemore. Adam is responsible for leading Standards Australia's engagement and strategic delivery, international communications and design, research and analysis and events teams. Since joining the organisation in 2009, Adam has had various roles in engagement and standards development. He's been a member of the executive team since 2015 and represents Standards Australia on numerous national and international committees. Also joining us today is Associate Professor Nathan Langford, who is a former ARC Future Fellow, Associate Professor in Physics at the University of Technology, Sydney, and leads the Circuit Quantum Science Research Group, which works on experimental circuit QED quantum computing. He is a member of the UTS Centre for Quantum Software and Information and is also director of the new advanced prototype packaging facility being set up at UTS and New Sydney. Since the beginning of last year, Nathan has been heavily involved in the Australian and international JTC1 Working Group 14 on quantum information technology. We're also joined by Associate Professor Simon Devitt, who is the Research Director at the Centre for Quantum Software and Information at UTS. His research focuses on quantum error correction and fault tolerance, the design of large-scale quantum computing and communication systems and the compilation of resource optimization of quantum algorithms. Simon is the co-founder and managing director of HBAR Quantum Consultants and co-founder of the new quantum startup iGIN Systems Pty Limited. And finally, we're joined by Professor Andrew Durack, who is an innovator and entrepreneur in the global quantum technologies ecosystem, leading teams in both industry and academia. He is CEO and co-founder of Durack, a full stock quantum computing company employing the silicon CMOS quantum bits developed by his team at UNS Sydney over the past two decades. He is concurrently a Scientia Professor in Quantum Engineering at UNSW Sydney, an ARC Laureate Fellow and a member of the Executive Board of the Sydney Quantum Academy. On this episode, we explore quantum technologies, the challenges to achieving quantum at scale and the many ways in which standards support and simultaneously keep up with the fast paced environment in which quantum is developed. Our guests also share their views on what is needed to achieve the vision of Australia's first quantum national strategy. Thank you all for joining me here today, and thank you, Nathan, for joining us virtually. I guess I'll start off in terms of quantum and and what it means for people. There is a substantial amount of activity going on in the quantum space. And for some of our listeners, Simon, who who aren't familiar with quantum, what is quantum and and quantum technologies?
1: Right. So to try to keep this as as short as I possibly can, (laughs) everyone's pretty familiar with quantum technologies because we all carry them around. We all interact with them every day. Quantum technologies really sort of emerged in the 20th century and there's three quintessential examples of quantum technologies that everyone's familiar with the transistor which is everywhere literally the laser which you can say is largely responsible for the emergence of the internet or high-speed global communications the third example we always point to is mri medical imaging being able to take pictures inside the body by manipulating through magnetic fields individual atoms and individual particles In the water in your body and the other soft tissue in your body. These three technologies really did define the 20th century. There's no doubt about it. They led to the digital revolution in computing and communications, and they are quantum technologies. The fundamental way that, say, a transistor works as a switch only occurs because of the quantum mechanical behaviour of the atoms that exist inside a traditional silicon semiconductor. That's how we make a switch. A laser, the same thing. It's the what we call the coherent behavior of trillions upon trillions upon trillions of photons Mm -hmm. that make a laser laser. The thing is, with these uh, quantum technologies, what we would call first generation quantum technologies, the behavior that we try to exploit in the case of a transistor, say a switch, is quantum mechanical in nature, but it doesn't express itself quantum mechanically. It's a switch. It's on, it's off. What we're all trying to do now with this new generation of quantum technologies that people have heard of, whether it's quantum computing, quantum communications, quantum sensing, is not only are we manipulating the quantum behavior of individual atoms or individual particles of light, we're actually manifesting sort of quantum behavior to actually do computation or do communication tasks. So that's the fundamental difference between first generation quantum technology that people would all know and love, and the second generation that we're all trying to pursue now. The second generation is a lot harder because we're obviously trying to control very precisely the quantum mechanical behaviour of individual atoms or individual particles of light. But we also think it's going to open up a similar revolution in the 21st century as the first generation did in the 20th.
0: And then when we look at some of the key quantum technologies, I might throw this one to you, Nathan. Where are they being advanced today and what industries have the potential to benefit the most?
2: Simon mentioned the three quintessential quantum technologies of the 20th century. The three quintessential quantum technologies of the 21st century, the second quantum revolution technologies are quantum computing, quantum communications, and quantum sensing. And one of the applications that I find most exciting is within the context of quantum computing, in particular, the application of quantum computers to the problem of quantum simulations. Basically, one of the first ideas in quantum computing came from, or was reported by like was started to be spoken about by Richard Feynman in the early 1980s. And he pointed out that complex quantum systems are really, really hard to simulate on a classical computer. And so much so that some things that you might want to do, even with the world's best supercomputers, could take tens of thousands of years to try to solve these problems, even using like the the full capacity of supercomputing. But what he pointed out was that if you want to simulate The behavior of a quantum mechanical system efficiently then you should use another quantum mechanical system and that idea the idea of being able to use a surrogate quantum system to model the behavior of another quantum system is the idea behind quantum simulations, and it's probably one of the most important currently known applications of quantum computing. And it could have applications across huge numbers of areas, as an example, uh, in pharmaceuticals. When it comes to designing drugs and identifying, diagnosing medical conditions and identifying how diseases work, a lot of that stuff at the moment has to happen in physical labs trialing and trialing and trialing things over and over again. There's something called in silico quantum chemistry and modelling, which is basically trying to do it in classical computers. But as I just mentioned, they really break down very early on in the piece. The idea that you could replace a whole bunch of that testing and design process with uh, something like a quantum computer, where you could just simulate it on a quantum computer and do it much more efficiently, could have enormous impacts for things like drug design, vaccine development, at both in terms of speed and cost. And just one other quick example, all our food comes from stuff where we need fertilizer to to put the nitrogen back in the ground and give the nutrients to the plants that grow. That process is a century-old process, which has kind of not really been able to be improved very much. But the molecule that is at the center of that process, which is called the harbor process, the molecule at the center of that process is too big to be simulated on a classical computer. And if you could make some gains on how efficient that process for nitrogen fixation is, that's several percents of the world's global carbon output goes into making fertilizer. So if you could make some gains on that, you could have a big impact.
0: Thanks, Nathan. And and Andrew, is that something that that in terms of your view on what industries have the potential to benefit the most? Do you have a similar or any different examples?
3: Nathan's primarily talked about quantum computing. Just briefly, the other areas that were in the quantum landscape are quantum communications and quantum sensing. So uh, quantum communications offers the opportunity to communicate information with, in theory, perfect security. So security hacking of data is obviously a very topical issue at the moment and will continue to be more and more of concern. So quantum communications offers a pathway to provide, in theory, perfect security. So that's a major application area which cuts across all of the economy. Quantum sensing there's a lot of uh, activity globally, in particular in Australia, in this area. Quantum sensing has a range of applications in terms of, for example, navigation, it's particularly important for defence. Also, for example, for mining, for identifying ore bodies using advanced magnetic sensors that can be put up into space and do geographic tracking. Of all of those, the quantum computing aspects have the broadest applications and potentially the most significant ones. In Nathan talked about the major areas of simulation, which and you gave the examples of chemical design, both for biological materials and also for chemistry, et cetera. Also added to that would be the design of new materials, lighter weight, harder materials that can make more efficient airplanes or cars or surgical instruments, whatever you name it. So the applications are enormous. Essentially, anything that where a new material or a new biological system can help technology or society as an application. I'll just add to that that those are the ones that are probably the most solidly agreed upon applications for quantum computing when it reaches appropriate scale. But there are other areas that are being explored, for example, quantum machine learning where quantum computers can provide further enhancement to AI in certain classes of areas. There's also a lot of work um, being done on op- optimization and scheduling and so on that can be useful for logistics. A whole range of the application list is, areas. Is endless.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and in terms and Nathan and Simon, you both partnered with Standards Australia to co-author a series of quantum white papers, two of which focused on the need and challenges of scalability for quantum computing and quantum communication networks. I might throw to you, Simon, where do you see the biggest challenges? challenge to achieving quantum at scale?
1: I wouldn't say that there's any one. We're effectively re-engineering computing and communications technology from the ground up. So everything that happened in the development over the last 70, 80 years in the development of of classical computing and classical communications, we, to a certain extent, have to do again. If for no other reason than the resources that are already being used to make silicon chips or fiber optics are going to be continued to be used for that. And certainly at the moment, we've got a chip shortage, so I'm not sure that they're going to divert too many resources to do quantum. But there's also the challenge, these systems do need to get big. Both computing and communications need to get very, very large. A lot of people sort of see that as a bit of a downside to quantum technologies. I don't, simply because we have to think of what we're competing against. I mean, classical computing and communication systems are really, really good at what they do. They don't push to the level that what Nathan was talking about in terms of quantum simulation, being able to model everything with inside a computer to whatever accuracy we want to do. Sure, classical computers can't get that far, but they are very, very good at what they do and being able to compete with them using quantum technology, you know, we're not going to be able to do it with the equivalent of 10 bits or 20 bits. We're going to have to scale these systems up. And scaling these systems up means also developing the core infrastructure that's necessary to build the systems. As we talked about in report one on quantum computing, there's still a bit of a a question within even the community itself as to what quantum computing is going to look like in the future. Is it going to be ubiquitous type technology like we already see with classical computers and phones? A lot of the primary assumptions of the industry is that that's what we want it to be. We want it to get, maybe it takes a long time, but we want it to get to the level where quantum computing technology is almost as ubiquitous as classical computing technology. But it could swing in the other direction. It could swing where these machines need to be so large and they're so capital intensive to actually construct that they might be more equivalent to the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva or gravitational wave detectors where we can only really build a handful of them and then their value sort of comes in after that. And if you really have a lot of incentive and a lot of motive and a lot of finances to run particular simulations, you will get access to these machines or it'll be divvied up by governments and sort of portioned out. So it's still unclear where we're going to go with this. Mm -hmm. Now that the companies, the startups are sort of gearing up and corporates are sort of getting into the quantum game, they've demonstrated the building blocks of the technology. There's nothing we think from a scientific perspective that stops us doing quantum computing at scale, now we're getting into the next phase, which is what is all the support technology, the infrastructure, the training, everything else that comes along with building an entire new class of
2: technology and what that, how's that going to evolve and what that's, what's that going to look like.
0: Nathan, anything to add to that?
2: As Simon was saying, we're basically rebuilding this technology from the ground up, but we're not replacing the technology. The point is to augment the existing technology because classical computers do a lot of stuff really really well. The things that classical computers already do well, we are never going to be able or very unlikely that we will be able to outperform those things using a quantum computer. And quantum computers will always be much harder than building a classical computer. We have to focus, we have to to always keep in focus the fact that the goal of the quantum computer is not to replace classical computers, but to target the problems that classical computers find really difficult. When we're talking about they have to get big, one of the big challenges associated with making a big quantum computer is the big classical computing infrastructure that has to go alongside it in order to run the quantum computer. And even just controlling the communication between the classical computer and the quantum computer is itself a massive challenge. Because if you've got a 100 qubit quantum computer, you probably have three, 400 cables going in and out of the cryogenic infrastructure that you have to send in all the control signals, for example. If you've got a million qubit or a 10 million qubit or a billion qubit quantum computer, then you've got to get that information coming in and out somewhere. And that's a huge amount of information that you have to navigate and, and where that comes from and where we create it. There are some big challenges there. Andrew can talk to one of the challenges, I think they just had a, a, a big result a year or two ago with doing some of this electronics at some low cryogenic temperature scales, which then takes some of the load on taking information in and out of the fridge. Scaling up is a big challenge. And one of the things is I think that there's a growing feeling in the community that we won't be able to get real economically useful Applications from quantum computers until they're big and until we solve problems like quantum error correction and, and reach fault tolerance. There's this intermediate era called they call it the NISC era, but you know, there's this intermediate regime, and people are working very hard to try and find out is there an interesting application that we can find in that space? And probably it seems like there's a consensus building that no, we need to go for the long term. And that's okay because the long-term payoff is huge. So this is the thing with developing technologies. This is a challenge with quantum computing because it has a long development timescale, but it has a massive payoff. So it's still worth putting in that effort. And it's also one of these things like you can't just say, oh, well, we'll we'll sit back and wait. And then 20 years when things get closer, then we'll start. You'll be behind. We need to be in there from the start. Otherwise, you'd just be left behind.
0: Thanks, Nate. And in terms of that industry perspective, what, what are your views on the needs and, well, the, the challenges? Apologies for scaling quantum technologies.
2: Yeah, first,
3: I just wanted to clarify the definition of big because people <laughs> are both Simon and you know Nathan have commented on that we need big quantum computers. What we need are big numbers of quantum bits. Okay. Okay, so we need large numbers. It's uh, commonly estimated that in order to Attack some of those exciting problems that Nathan talked about, and I touched upon that you're going to need many millions of physical quantum bits. So that's what we mean by big. I now have to declare a particular commercial interest of our company. Our company Dirac is focused on a particular technology, silicon-based quantum computing which uses standard silicon chips. So the whole focus of our company is to make a quantum computer that is comparatively small. okay, but mm-hmm. with millions and ultimately billions of these quantum bits in a compact unit. So one of the challenges that we see with other technologies is that because the physical qubits themselves in most of those systems are relatively larger, by that I'm talking about many thousands in sometimes millions of times larger in area, that means that in order to make one of these what are called fault-tolerant quantum computers to attack those big problems like simulation, you potentially are looking at a very, very large system of the engineering complexity that Simon talked about, something like the Large Hadron Collider with huge cryogenic systems, huge amounts of power consumed and so on. The focus of our company is very much to develop a system that can be compact and be just put in one refrigeration unit. And all of those technologies have challenges. So in the case of the large systems, it's a power management problem. It's how can you communicate what's called entangled quantum information over many, many meters and do it on time scales, it have to be very fast. That's a significant scientific challenge as well for those larger systems. For our silicon-based systems, we have our own challenges. We, we have to be able to engineer these chips in such a way that we can manage all of the operations while maintaining heat and power management on the chip. Because although Nathan mentioned the fact that a few years ago, we had a breakthrough where we showed that we could operate our qubits at about an order of magnitude higher temperature than most solid-state qubits, the other for example, superconducting qubits of the type that IBM and Google and others use. So we showed we could operate at a significantly high temperature, which then allows you to integrate conventional electronics uh, with those qubits, which is important for running the error correction. Nevertheless, it is still an engineering challenge. There's there's very significant engineering works that have to be done. I mean, it is going to be difficult for anyone to do it. Obviously, you know, we're a company that decided to take on that challenge as have others.
0: And in terms of then looking at the challenges and I guess where standards can play a role in, in supporting the industry, Adam, how might standards support the scalability of quantum technologies and how do we ensure that standards um, that we avoid standardizing prematurely?
4: That's a cracking question, Shannon. <laughs> Thank you. Before I answer that directly, I think there's four areas of work that we're involved in at the moment, right? So the, the points made by Simon and Nathan in some of these areas of technology, it's additional work on top of work that's been going on for a long time to sort of get us ready for the next phase. Here's a really important piece of work to starting now that I know Nathan is very deeply involved in around terminology and definitional stuff at an international level. So unless we're able to speak the same language globally, it's going to be very hard to take steps forward. And then there's an emerging conversation going on in a whole bunch of different fora about how we take a next sort of industrialization step, the fourth point there's a governance piece that sits over the top of this. And the governance piece is, well, where's all this work going to be done and how are we going to avoid duplicating effort, wasting experts' time, upsetting the good players in the market that are trying to do the right thing by having competing protocols and specifications being developed? In Australia, we're, we're very lucky that Minister Husick, the industry minister last week, released Australia's national quantum strategy. Within that strategy was a pillar on standards, which I don't think you would have seen five years ago. Um, that level of understanding of the challenge of making sure that the standards are being developed at the right pace. What the government wants is a thriving, accessible, and safe standards environment for Australian industry. And what that means in practice is very different depending on which part of the journey you're on, where you are in the technology stack, where Australia can lead internationally where we follow. But the one thing that we're very focused on at Standards Australia is making sure that we, first of all, don't get in the way of the rollout of this technology, but then secondly, making sure that Australian experts and companies are very well positioned globally because we're not developing quantum computers for Australia. Quantum computing is being developed in the world and we need to make sure that we're part of that transition.
0: Thank you. Adam, and, and I guess, Simon, in your view, how my standards support the scalability of quantum technologies?
1: With computing, it's an interesting question because at the moment we do have a variety of different systems being developed. So I always like to say it's everyone might remember the old Intel versus PowerPC or the Mac versus Windows game. Um, in quantum computing and quantum technologies, it's a little bit different. We've got nine hardware systems that are under development. That have received significant funding globally. They're all completely different from each other. Andrew's systems are based on silicon spin qubits. There's, there's quantum architectures out there based on particles of light. There's quantum architectures based upon electrons floating on a pool of liquid helium. How standardization works across those many, many different systems, I don't think is, is going to be understood until we sort of see the sort of natural whittling away as some of these systems grow and we figure out which ones are going to scale faster, cheaper, more easily than than some of the others where standardization i think is is should be making an impact right now is communications, definitely, because we're starting to see nascent products hit the market. Um, and communications always need standardization. I mean, you want two people to start talking to each other. or You want to develop a machine that's talking to something here and talking to something else over there. You want to be able to, to standardize how that interface happens, but also in the software space. So there's a lot of work being done in quantum software. I, I work at the Center for Quantum Software at UTS. We're already seeing software packages deployed and sort of de facto standards on the software side are already, already emerging. So a lot of companies that do software research, they put out these packages or languages where they're sort of just already just becoming de facto standards within the field. But that's the kind of thing where standards can have a real impact now is software and communications. Computing, I think we're going to have to wait a little bit longer and see exactly how do the systems evolve? How are they going to be integrated in with classical cloud systems, et cetera, et cetera.
0: From an industry perspective, where do you think the standards can support in the scalability?
3: I largely agree with what Simon's just said. Let me just emphasize, I'm not a standards expert, (laughs) um, and so I'm coming in colder than others on this particular question. I think that I agree that getting the language and the definitions is important. I mean, at the moment, for example, there's a lot of hype out there in the market and in the industry, and it's important for customers, governments, and users to be able to know, you know, what, you know, what is a qubit? What do we mean? What do we mean by the error rates, what can usefully be done. I think it is important that there is an agreed definition of these things to to avoid people you know, potentially being fooled and making poor decisions. As Simon said, there is still no definite pathway on what is going to be the dominant hardware technology that's going to be used. Obviously, our company believes it's going to be silicon, <laughs> but that's our view, but we need a, a community. So I think it's very difficult to standardise on the specific hardware. But as Simon said, At the upper layers of the stack the software the operating systems etc that is areas where standardization can begin to be used i think that it needs to be done very thoughtfully i know that from speaking earlier to some of the team here at standards australia that there is a, a desire to make sure that anything that's done is done with broad consultation from the industry and the and the scientific community to make sure it's done in a way that enhances the development of the industry and doesn't slow it down but Yeah, I think that the software standards, and also making sure that hardware providers are able to interface with software providers in as simple a way as possible without barriers, and and so that is where certain standardisation can assist. But again, it needs to be done in a way that doesn't create either anti-competitive mechanisms or also damage the prospects of companies who are trying to develop it.
0: Nathan, is there anything that you can add to that?
2: So one thing I think. In the hardware space, I think there is one area that standards can start to play a role, especially as the industry starts to grow. People who have been doing experiments in quantum technologies for the last 20 years are very familiar with this idea that you have to build your quantum computer out of something, and most of the time you have to build it out of existing technology and plugging bits together, or at least you have to use existing technology very extensively. Problem is that the requirements on those technologies that we have are often very different sometimes substantially more strict than the requirements of the technology that it was of the applications that it was designed for so in telecommunications a telecommunications engineer wouldn't blink at, at having a a loss of 50% per device everywhere along the chain just doesn't matter but in quantum communications a loss of 50% might just kill the the application right from the word go you can't get it working at all this is an opportunity and as, as I was saying, so people who have been involved for a while are very familiar with the fact that to get that technology working as well as they need it to involves very close, detailed conversations with specific classical technology providers where you're trying to get them to make something that's kind of bespoke and outside their normal operating parameter regime. And can they do it? And they're doing it for a small group of people. So it's not, is it economically viable at that point? The quantum industry is starting to grow. If we can start to create detailed specifications of what those quantum systems require, and some of these enabling technologies are actually shared across multiple of these platforms. I mean, some of the system, the, the technologies I use with superconducting circuits, very similar to some of the things that Andrew uses with his silicon processors. And if we can start to specify our requirements for that in such a way that the classical technology providers, these enabling technologies can start to meet our requirements more easily, that could really help the development of the hardware go along. But as Andrew said, you've got to do this in a careful way and you don't want to inhibit innovation and so forth. And so there, I think there are kind of two guiding principles for what we need to do at the moment. The first one is that companies generally have their kind of economic value proposition. This is the intellectual property that they make their money on. And the first guiding principle is that one of the easiest ways to make good standards now that will get lots of buy-in is to look at standards that work in areas that are not where companies are making their money like that are enabling areas, facilitating areas that are not critical to the product they're trying to sell. And a good example of that is in software with, for example, this quantum assembly language that was put out by IBM and has now become, as Simon said, almost a de facto standard. And that helps everybody, hardware providers and software providers. And it's not wasn't really something that anyone was pinning their profits on. This is something that's actually grown very rapidly and grown very significantly. So that's the first sort of space that we can operate in. The second guiding principle, I would say, is that is to work in exactly the opposite direction. In some cases, where there is a clear public interest and a clear regulatory interest in terms of maybe procurement or government and investors, you really need to know where the companies are delivering what they say, how to compare what different companies are delivering. And so this very much gets in the road of what companies want to be making money from in the sense that left to their own devices, they're obviously going to give you the numbers that are most, that make their product look like the best possible product. But what we need is to develop a set of sort of more objective, rigorous benchmarks that allow us to really assess properly what these systems are capable of delivering, whether they're delivering it, how these systems compare to each other. And obviously that one, there's a clear public interest for doing so, but then it needs to be obviously a very broadly consultative process to, to make sure that this is really expert driven, that this has got the maximum amount of, really has as much scientific consensus as possible as to these are legitimate benchmarks. But if we can create those sorts of standards, then that could be a, a real help. The challenge is some of those benchmarking challenges are actually still big research problems in their own right. The US government currently has a a big program, uh, I think it's called the Quantum Benchmarking Project or something like that, which is basically for how do you benchmark large-scale quantum computers, and there are a whole host of research projects that are trying to tackle that task. So that's a hard one, but it's also really important and quite urgent in some respects.
0: And then when we look at the the urgency in that regard, Adam, can you tell us a little bit about what, well, this is a two-part question. So what is currently underway for quantum technology standardization and how is Standards Australia contributing to this work? But also, as Andrew and, and Simon and Nathan have mentioned, it is an evolving, you know, it's fast-paced, it's continuously evolving. And then how do standards development keep up with that fast-paced environment? I know it's a big, meaty question.
4: There's a lot of work going on all over the world Janet. we are helping australian experts contribute to that work but it's tough and a lot of it is on zoom calls through the nights and you've got incredible expertise that works hard all day and then sits up all night on phone calls which is very very tough in one sense but the thing that we know in australia is if we want to be a legitimate player in this industry as we push on, then we need to be there. And the world is run by those who turn up, so we need to be there. The phase that we're in at the moment is is a little bit to Nathan's point, which is to say, all right, well, in the standard space, where can we legitimately leverage work that's been done by others? who? Have done a good job or are doing a good job, and we have some access to and transparency on what's doing. Where can we add our own layer of value? Where are Australian experts best placed at that very sort of competitive end of the market? So where where Nathan was talking about the sort of pre competitive environment of making sure that we're not solving the same problem over and over again to 98% of the same. How can we make sure that we're setting Australian industries up to be a global competitor by getting ahead on some of this stuff? In summary, I think the trick here for us is number one to make sure we have a transparent process, an open process, and an accessible process to the industry here in Australia, including, you know, people who are very, very busy, right? We need to make it easy for people to contribute and and understand what's happening. The next point is that we need to make sure that the work that we're doing is leading to some outcome that will take the industry forward. And then the last point is to make sure that we're working as part of this global system. Because my, my point before, and i make it again, we don't want to have a quantum computing industry in Australia. We want the Australian industry to be contributing at that global level, and we need to make sure that we don't unnecessarily put barriers in the way as we set this up.
0: Adam, you briefly touched on the Australian government's national quantum strategy earlier in the discussion and I'm really keen because like Adam said it was released last week I'm really keen to get all of your views in terms of how we realise the the objective that that was set so I have it here that it's by 2030 Australia is recognised as a leader of the global quantum industry and quantum technologies are integral to a a prosperous fair and inclusive Australia I'm keen to get everyone's views on what you think from your perspective be that standards industry academia what is required to realise this vision I might start off with you, uh, Simon?
1: I should disclose I'm on the National (laughs) Advisory Committee, so I'll I'll choose my words carefully, otherwise the (laughs) chief scientist is going to yell at me. I mean, Australia obviously has been a leader in the early development of quantum technologies. We were one of the first nations to invest significant research funding into quantum computing, stretching, you know at least targeted towards quantum technology. We started in the late 90s, but as has been pointed out in the National Strategy Report, the history of Australian physics that is related to quantum goes all the way back to the 50s. Right now, we've released the uh, initial sort of strategy document. It's really going to hopefully set an ambitious goal for Australia. We've got a lot of nations, if you look at the UK, you look at Germany, they're on their second or third round now okay. of sort of national strategies. The the British have just earmarked two and a half billion pounds, and that's sort of their second or third go around oh, wow. um, okay. when it comes to funding massive projects in, in quantum technology development. The Germans have just announced another three billion euros into quantum technology development. So the bar has been set high for Australia. Obviously, we we don't have the, the, the GDP or the size of these nations, and we didn't need to... 20, 30 years ago either. If we do it strategically and we do it pushing up against our strengths and finding where those those nascent places are for us within a global quantum industry... I certainly think we can, we can maintain our standards and, and actually be part of the ecosystem rather than just be customers of it. But we'll have to see how that evolves over the next six to eight months, both from the federal level and the state level. But you know, I'm quietly confident that we'll, we'll meet the challenge of, of actually being able to, to stay within the game as everyone else is dumping a hell of a
3: lot of money into this.
0: Yeah. And Andrew, from that industry perspective, what, what do you think is required to, to realize that vision?
3: I think. People are aware of the National Reconstruction Fund, which is a $15 billion fund to help manufacturing and advanced manufacturing in Australia. So that's passed Parliament now, and currently they're configuring it with the Advisory Committee and so on. Of that $15 billion, $1 billion has been earmarked for a thing called the Critical Technologies Fund, and these are technologies of considered of strategic importance uh, for Australia, and the Minister at Husek's made pretty clear that quantum technologies is definitely very high up on the list in that critical technologies fund so the aim of the nrf and and the critical technologies fund is to provide finance in the form of equity direct equity investments loans etc into companies that are in these areas of critical technology and manufacturing so i think for our industry i can certainly say from our company directs perspective that is a really really important mechanism that's been put in place where we're Eagerly awaiting it to be implemented and for opportunities to arise for strategic investments in areas in particular, obviously for the mm-hmm. quantum industry. Moving to the national quantum strategy, the two are linked, but the national quantum strategy obviously is very, very focused specifically on yeah. quantum. And Simon, as, as he mentioned, is on, on that national advisory group. I think that it's been put together very thoughtfully. Cathy Foley, chief scientist, did a wonderful job of really being super consultative could not fault the consultation process. Everyone had a chance to put input. We put input in from Dirac and I know most universities, academics, companies did. I believe it's an excellent strategy. Of course, the question is the strategy is great, but Mm -hmm. there will have to be some finance backing up the implementation. I mean, the minister has said now on a few occasions not to expect a lot of extra money for that. I do think that there will have to be further investments separate from the National Reconstruction Fund. So, Simon specifically mentioned, for example, the investments that are going on in Europe. So Germany, 3 billion, the UK, well over you know, a couple of billion. France has also got mechanisms. If we look at just the Germans, for example, over the past year, they have invested of order $1 billion in projects, which is drawing in both German companies, but also foreign companies to build quantum computing systems in Germany, for the German government to have them on German soil and to have the capabilities in Germany. I do believe that, you know, Australia needs to look at having that sort of an effort in Australia as well. Obviously, it can't be exactly the same scale, we don't have the same GEP, but if we do it proportionately, there is an awful lot that can be done in Australia. And, I, and I'm not just talking about quantum computing, I, the other area, quantum communications, quantum sensing are all areas that should have investment, But but certainly given the fact that Australia in many ways is one of the global birthplaces of quantum computing. This is an opportunity that we must tap in quantum computing. And I do think there does need to be further investment. I'm very conscious that the government is treading a tightrope at the moment, not wanting to put up inflation, etc. So it's a difficult business. I hate saying you need more money, but unfortunately it's the reality.
0: No, for sure. And and Adam, I guess then from that standards lens, what do you think, because standards play is one of the key themes within the National Quantum Strategy, what do you think is required to, to realise that aspect of the strategy?
4: From industry and from universities and from government is, is a, a real sense of collaboration and camaraderie that we're all in this together. Not doing dumb things, Shannon, is (laughs) something else. That always
0: helps. (laughs) Yeah,
4: and, and I think sometimes, you know, everyone gets excited, and I'm talking globally here, I'm not talking about in Australia, but everyone gets excited about the next shiny thing and then 18 people start to try and solve the same problem. Where to Nathan's point before, all we need to do is to solve the problem, right? It's not a competitive play. Being really, really strategic about how we're working with others, I think, is the next element. Making sure that Australia remains a part of this industry as it evolves would be have to be a focus, right? We don't want to be a customer. We want to be a player here in Australia. And just keeping that focus, and to Andrew's point, investing as we need to, will really help us. Get this done, and of course, just remember, Shannon, that standards don't sit there alone. Right? They're part of this industry evolution. So we need to make sure that that's not forgotten or boring work that people do in back rooms. That it's actually part of this play as we push through.
0: Yes, Nathan. Finally, in your in your view, what's required?
2: One of the reasons why Australia's quantum computing community and quantum community more generally was so advanced is because of early investment. And it's also because as a community, we had pretty remarkable interaction between researchers across the country working in this space. Like I went to my first conference with Andrew, I think in t- the year 2000, maybe, uh, or or 2001 at the latest. Must have been you about know, so five, we were-
3: Nathan. <laughs> <laughs>
4: I was already an old we- man.
2: <laughs> <laughs> like th- there was a massive amount of, Communication going on between the different people in their community back then. And we're still being collaborative today. The Sydney Quantum Academy is a very collaborative effort amongst the organizations in Australia, in Sydney, particularly for educating people. But we have to be conscious of the fact that, as Simon said, over the last five years or so, a bit longer, some 10 years in some cases, countries around the world have been creating national quantum strategies. And in every case I can think of, those strategies have come with significant investments to power those strategies, like concrete directed investment for that strategy. And that's been really crucial. Like in, in the US, there's investment, not just in the companies. Companies are super important, but the companies are, if you like, at the top of the pyramid. The companies can't survive if the rest of the pyramid isn't there. That requires educating students coming through. That requires having a really strong academic environment so that there are people creating new ideas, people training the people that are going into to work in those companies. So at all levels, we need this really strong environment. Something like the US National Strategy, like it has a lot of funds directly about not just at the industry level, but at the academic level, at the educating high school students level, at the, you know, engaging with the standards process level. And I think it's a tight economic environment at the moment. We all hear these messages all the time. It's not about everybody just going, we need more money. It's just a simple fact that if we don't try to increase our investment to be able to grow the community here, then we just won't be able to keep that standing. We were really one of the world-leading countries. We're now coasting a little bit and other people are taking off. And if we don't take off with them, we're going to be left a little bit at a standstill. And that's the challenge. And so I think in order to really make Australia a recognised leader of the global quantum industry by 2030, we need to be thinking, well, how do we significantly grow the community, not just create new startups, because new startups don't pop out of nowhere. We need to, how do we create the ecosystem that leads to them? Andrew, his company grew out of a university research activity. And if we don't keep the research environment really vibrant, that's not going to happen.
0: Thanks for that, Nathan. I think one final question for everyone just to wrap things up. What one lesson from all of you do you think could be learned from um, development of other emerging technologies such as say blockchain AI that may be applicable uh, to the growth and standardization of the quantum technology sector. So one kind of lesson do you guys have or can think of Andrew?
3: I think that and I'm going to stick to quantum computing In quantum computing we have one big advantage over AI and that is that we are not going to have a fault tolerant quantum computer in the next five years. I'm I'm confident in saying we're not going to have it in five years, okay? So we have time to do this. AI at the moment, it's a bit like building the aircraft while you're flying it. You know, they're now in a desperate situation, uh, as we know, in that the potential is outstripping the ability to control it. So we have time to do it, and I think that's the big difference.
0: Brilliant. Simon?
3: Well, to, I mean, to foster,
1: to further growth and make sure that this industry is sustainable, I think we need to t- be very, very careful and, and make sure we've, we're always checking ourselves to not go overboard and make sure that we're not telling everyone that quantum computers is going to solve every problem that they
4: could conceivably have in the world for all time.
0: Setting expectations. Setting expectations.
4: <laughs> I always say setting expectations. And Adam? I agree with everyone here, but I, I think there's a beautiful place between having a burning platform and doing nothing where we need to be and you can either support or kill an industry depending on where you are on that spectrum and and just taking time to assess where our policy settings are where our standards activity is where our investment money is reasonably often yep. will help us to win
0: and Nathan one lesson
4: so just to choose one I agree with everyone else and there are lots but
2: some of these communities, some of the problems that they've, for example, had with AI, problems like all of these training sets have not been built with, uh, based on diverse cultural and ethnic backgrounds and so forth. So they get people, like, you know, these face recognition things struggle with the, the wrong cultures, the wrong ethnicities. I think we know that we currently have a problem with diversity in the quantum community, similar to the way that computing technologies IT technologies have a problem with diversity they're already in the position where they're starting to suffer from having had that problem as andrew says we have a little bit more time we do have time to solve it but that's one of the problems i think we need to solve we need to really try to work and keep working towards making sure we have a community that is inclusive engages everybody and and benefits from everybody so that when we get to having a fault tolerant quantum computer in five to 40 years, or whatever that's going to take. <laughs> Again, setting um,
0: expectations. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. Um, when we get to having a fault-tolerant quantum computer, we have already kind of got that platform of reliability that we can build on.
0: Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for joining me today. Thanks, Mullen. Thank, really. you. Thank, Thank you. Thanks, Shannon. I want to thank our guests for providing us with great insights into the world of standards and the need to adapt to ensure we remain relevant in areas such as critical and emerging technologies. Check out our show notes if you want to learn more about the role of standards in critical and emerging technologies and the standards development process.